bulletin here. You have your own translation in there. You can ask some questions of Pastor Sean or Pastor John Mark if you want to. And please make sure you put your names on those so we can definitely get those back to you. This morning we're going to be in uh, Psalm 123 of the Psalms of Ascent. And before we get there, let's just kind of get our mindset into where this psalm is going, what's going on in the background here. I want you to think about in our own time, our own day and age. It seems as if the people who are in charge, culturally and politically in charge, that they often just don't seem to get Christians or Christianity anymore. I mean, the New York Times is the leading newspaper of the culture. You may not think that it leads the culture and that it doesn't tell you what to do. It it does, unfortunately. It is the voice of the cultural elite, and it often chides Christians. And then chiding them, it also shows it has absolutely no understanding of Christianity. I want to give you an example. A couple years ago at Easter, they had to run a correction from what they uh, said about Easter. They had to run uh, this correction right here. They said this, an earlier version of this article mischaracterized the Christian holiday of Easter. It is the celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, not his resurrection into heaven, as they had reported. Again, that might be a little theologically obtuse, but for the most part, most Christians would never say, we believe Jesus was resurrected into heaven. You know, he was resurrected like back to earth from the grave. That's from April 1st, 2013. Okay, that was not so bad. Three Sundays ago, maybe two Sundays ago, in an article on tourism to Israel, they said this, and they have not corrected it yet. They said this, the vast church of the Holy Sepulchre, marking the site where many Christians believe that Jesus was buried, is usually packed with pilgrims that was echoing and empty. I don't know anybody who is what the Bible would consider a Christian who believes that Jesus is buried in that church. Because... We believe in God the Father, my maker of heaven and earth, right? And we get that little phrase, who was resurrected on the third day. Jesus Christ, the tenet of Christianity, is not in a grave. He's not buried anywhere. There is no body of Jesus. He is resurrected and now sits at God's right hand. And at the risk of sounding like a fundamentalist, you in no way can be what the Bible considers a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected. There's just nothing there for you. That's a biggie. And they have yet to correct that one even though it's been pointed out, even by people who don't believe in Christianity, that's not what Christians believe. Now, I am not saying that the editors of the New York Times have got to believe those things in order to run a newspaper. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, you know, they need to at least have someone on staff who can say, this is the belief system that you scorn. What you're scorning is not actually what any Christians believe. Or how about this one? Our political leaders themselves, you can look back over the last eight years specifically, probably 10 to 12 more generally, and you can see that this idea that there's no real objective, right and wrong in the world, there's no real this is good and this is evil, that the hesitancy to name those two categories causes them to be very powerless against real evil when it pops up and as it grows and as it expands. And then they're forced to do something significant only when they can't ignore it any longer. But at the same time, when a person of certain beliefs refuses to bake a cake for people who are going to have a ceremony with other beliefs, well, they're on that one now. They're on it. Because you do not get to have beliefs that are different from ours, or they hold that in contempt. 
So you see, the idea of these people who are in charge of us, who are all rich, who all have way more influence than they should have, holding God's people in contempt and scorn. And we're going to get to see that that's not just our problem. These kind of people have been around for thousands of years, and they've been holding God's people in scorn for thousands of years. And this psalm is specifically written to deal with those types of people. So let's look together at God's Word, Psalm 123. I'll be reading from the ESV version. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, and it speaks to our daily life, to real things we go through. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see Christ in this psalm. That your Holy Spirit would minister to us through your word today and change us. Make us more like Christ and more faithful. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. But before we dive in, let's remember where we've been. Let's remember how the kind of the logical order of these psalms of ascent, because they really do fit together. They weren't just kind of thrown together. There's some meaning and some order here. Psalm 120, if you remember gets us to cease squatting in the world's front yard and instead pack our things and get back on the pilgrim path God calls us to, to faithfulness. Psalm 121 then, once we're back on the path, assures us of God's help, of God's power and his presence with us on that difficult journey as we're heading down this pilgrim path. Psalm 122 then rejoices to get to the destination of Jerusalem, the place where God is, where God meets with his people. And finally, Psalm 123 is walking into the sanctuary and being in worship after the journey. And so what does he do when he finally gets to go to worship? He lifts his eyes to the exalted Lord and he asks for help. I want to help you remember the sermon today. Maybe you could write this down. I'll give you one sentence to kind of remember. You can bring this up at family worship later during the week or over lunch today. Here's what we're going to talk about today. When the uppity folk mock we look up even higher for grace. I know uppity is not a real uppity word, but I think we all know what it means, right? Yeah. When the uppity folk mock, we look up even higher for grace. Because we're going to see in this psalm the picture of a servant before a master. And it's going to teach us that when false masters mock, when they sneer, when they hold us in contempt, we beg for mercy from our higher master. So let's look at that together. We're going to see, first of all, in this psalm that false masters mistreat I'm going to kind of change the order around because the crux of this psalm, the central part of this psalm, is that double cry for mercy in verse 3. So we're going to start there and ask, why does he cry for mercy? Why does he want mercy? Well, he answers that double cry in double as well. Look with me at your text at verse 3 and 4. Here's what he says. He says, we have had more than enough of contempt Our soul has had more than enough. So he asks for it twice, and he says, because I'm sick and tired of it, is what we would say. 
He's tired of the scorn. He's tired of the contempt from the rich, arrogant people. He says that God's people are full of shame because of it. Not that they're ashamed, but that they have been shamed by others. The voices of those who hold God's people in contempt, who hold them with scorn, has grated on them, and it's got them down, very much like the cultural elite can make us feel. And the people of Israel, of ancient Israel, dealt with this very same thing. I mean, in their congregation, when they came to worship, don't just think it's our problem. They had rich, practical atheists in ancient Israel, people who had land, who did the land, who went through the motions of going to temple and doing the sacrifices and being socially religious, but it didn't really make a difference in their life. There was no relationship with God through all those things. They just did it because that's what you do. They were practical atheists living in the congregation. And they would come to church and they would exert influence, and, but they didn't really have a robust relationship with God. Then they also had foreigners who, ruling over them who didn't know their God or want their God, tried to bring in their own gods and enforce it. They always had these problems in ancient Israel. Because throughout history, God's people have been mocked by the proud and the arrogant of the world. And this psalm kind of puts a benchmark and says we're sick of it. Notice in verse 4, he says, our soul has had more than enough. There's that word again. It pops up in every psalm of ascent so far. It's the deepest part of his person. We would say in our modern lingo, his heart. My heart is sick and tired of this. It just grates me on the inside. It grieves me. It makes me sad. It makes me angry. I just, it just bugs me. You know, for Christians, pilgrims, there's supposed to be a bit of that in our life. We're supposed to have a bit of our heart that's just bugged by this world. We may have great times of joy and happiness. I mean, God gives us friends, and he gives us children, and he gives us, he gives us prosperity. But fundamentally, we don't belong here. And that should make us occasionally cringe, if not be outright sad and bothered by this world. And I think a lot of times we've lost that. <clears throat> well, you know, we have five children and we're open to more, and I've told this story before, so if you've heard this before, please forgive me, but, you know, we, I've said we've had, we had major infertility issues the first several years of marriage. We were told by more than three or four doctors, you, know, you will never have children. It's not happening. And it filled our life with sadness, with despair. I'm not saying we were always down. I'm not saying we were always upset. We had times of joy and happiness, but it was like this black blanket that every time something neat would happen, that all of a sudden this black curtain would just come over it, we're childless and we're never going to have children it was that backdrop to our lives that kind of just underground sadness there and after years and years i can say our soul had had enough that we were sick and tired of it in our hearts and so we begged god for years to have mercy on us we begged god to bless us with children and and once he did we're leaving it up to him how many and that's where the psalmist is. The psalmist said, we are sick and tired of this. God, would you do something about this? It just bugs him so much. Now, maybe it would be more effective if he had put the nice snarky things on his Facebook. I don't know. Maybe you know, that email he forwards to everybody or maybe just grumbling about it. But he decided, you know, I don't think those things are going to actually work. I'm going to go to God and worship and say, will you fix this? Because this bugs me so much. Have mercy on your people. Have mercy on your covenant people who are weak, 
who are unfaithful, who have broken covenant with you, have mercy on us anyway because we're sick of this. That's the kind of God he believes he serves. Boys and girls, I I want you to get this. Would you please look with me at your verse 3 and 4? Here's what the psalmist is is trying to say. He says this, give us grace, Lord. Give us grace. We are sick and tired of others being mean to us. Our hearts are sick from selfish, rich people making fun of us and giving us problems. Boys and girls, have you ever been made fun of for no reason? Almost as if it just seems like the others just don't want you around. That's what the psalmist is talking about. It's happened to him too. And you know what? It happened to Jesus too. And it's happened to your parents too when they were younger. You know why? Because God's people don't belong here. And the Bible says we smell like God to the world and they reject that because us because of it. But that's okay because God has something bigger and better waiting for us. And so for all of us, that vague sadness, that kind of borderline level of just being bothered that you carry around is the mark of a pilgrim. It's the mark of recognizing, I don't belong here. I'm not supposed to be that comfortable here. So don't listen to the TV preacher who says, God wants you to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. And if you'll just send me 20 bucks, I can show you how to do it. Okay, this psalm reminds us that this world is not our home. This age is not what we were meant for. We were not meant to bear contempt, to bear scorn, but while in this world as a pilgrim, we will. Now, it was fun to make fun of the New York Times and, and politicians. Who doesn't want to make fun of politicians, right? But we live in an age of scoffing. And compared to most of the world, we live at ease. Let us not be so quick to read this psalm and to label the psalmist us and the people he's talking about them. Because very often we are the ones who are at ease and we hold in contempt our brothers and sisters in Christ. We hold at scorn the power of the gospel. We can be the cause of brothers and sisters in Christ crying out to God for help. And you and I can scoff at the power of the gospel actually to change things. Instead of that borderline level of just not liking the world and it's not fitting, we can actually go into cynicism and, and there's nothing God can ever do about it. That's scorn. That's contempt for the gospel. That's not what this psalm is talking about. This psalm is not saying, so sit back in unconcerned ease, admit to God that these people tick you off, and then just ignore them. No, he's saying, God, do something about it. And so far, it seems that the way you do stuff in this world is through your people, Lord, so use your people to do something about this. See, let this psalm convict you. Perhaps you have held the gospel in contempt and don't really think it can affect this situation. Perhaps you have had scorn for the church and what it can do by the power of the gospel so you need to sit back and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been that person. And then flee to his mercy and you will find it. Because this psalm shows us worship in real life. Jerusalem had a rough history. If you've read your Old Testament, it was under the oppression of other masters. It was under the oppression of bad kings and threats most of its time. So don't read these psalms in an ideal world. This psalm is like your life. There's ups and there's downs, there's trials, there's failures, there's hope, there's times to rejoice and times to weep. 
But all of those times, this psalm says, are times to come into God's presence and say, fix this. Because there is hope in the mercy and the grace of our exalted God. God doesn't begrudgingly give us mercy. He doesn't, fine, I guess I'll open my coin purse and give you a little bit of grace. No! He gladly gives mercy because God loves his people. And the psalmist believes that and is reminded of that in public worship. And we know that because we know that God has given us his son. How can we not believe he'll also give us mercy and grace too when we ask for it? Now, when the false masters mistreat you, turn to the living God again and ask him for mercy. And you will receive mercy from your heavenly master. And so now that we understand the issue of the psalm, we can understand the reason the psalm starts the way it does. People who thought they should tell God's people what to do, they were, they were getting God's people down. They were depressing, we could say, God's people. And so what does the psalmist do? He goes over their head. Look with me at verse 1. He says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. See, when the uppity people get him down, he goes over their head for grace. Because the psalmist is in worship. He's made the path to Jerusalem. He sees Jerusalem and rejoices over it. Now he's in the temple in worship. And I love this. He doesn't leave all his cares in the parking lot. He brings them into worship because he thinks this enthroned God can help with his problems. I love that. The fact that God is enthroned does not make him aloof and uncaring. No. God is on the throne. He can do something about it. He's large and in charge, we might say. And for the psalmist, it may seem that the enemies of God's people are in charge, but he says those are false masters. They hold us in contempt, but I'm going above their head to the real master because it is he who's enthroned in the heavens. There is no higher throne. He's the one you go to when you're under scorn, when you're held in contempt. See, this psalmist in worship remembers God is big enough to do something about my problems. Is your God big enough to do something about your problems? Before you answer, this psalmist actually shows us what that answer looks like when someone believes God is. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he have mercy upon us. See, the image is of a servant patiently waiting for the actions of the master. See, servants were all over the place at this time, and household servants especially in that culture, the master was not supposed to have to speak his needs. Think especially of a private dinner party, let's say. The master was not supposed to have to, excuse me, I need more water, excuse me, can you get them something? The master was supposed to be able to just like, do like hand motions, you know? Perhaps a good example is, not that I'm the master, but maybe you have seen occasionally Pastor Sean sometimes have to look over here at this row where some kids are and kind of just give a quick little, you know, or, <laughs> right? That's kind of how, what, it's, what it's like. He was just have to do hands. So the servant is always a faithful servant, constantly looking at the hands of the master so he doesn't miss any signals, so he doesn't bring shame to his master. He's waiting for the master to provide guidance. But also, in that specific context, there's another thing, is slaves and servants in that culture were not allowed weapons. 
They were not allowed to return insults. They were not allowed to defend themselves if struck. They were utterly helpless property, and they were treated according to the respect and fear people held their masters in. So not only do they look to their master for guidance, but they look to their master for protection and for food, for all their provisions. If one of the guests strikes a servant, he cannot strike himself back. But to defend his honor, the master will take care of that. And so a faithful servant steps back and says, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to provide for myself. He will give me guidance. He will give me resources. And that's all subsumed under this idea of as they look to the master for mercy, for grace. See, the psalmist says here that when God's people are treated with scorn, he's sick to the heart about it. And so in worshipful patience, he looks to God to defend God's own honor by defending his people. See, that's the secret right there. I just gave you the secret to peace during trials and difficulties. It's a servant mentality that says, God has promised to take care of me. God has promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. I sit back and I watch and wait for his guidance and protection. Really trusting in God to take care of your everyday difficulties. Not trusting in your ability to manipulate or spin the situation, but looking to the master for help. That's the secret to peace and trials. That's the secret this psalm says. When everybody holds you in contempt, you look to God for mercy and you wait. That, that's hard for us. We don't like, especially Southerners, we, we're not good at the whole... It seems, it seems needy, doesn't it, to, to, to say, well, fix this because I can't do it for myself. But worship is about being needy. The psalmist is not afraid to own his own need and say, I need help. I cannot do this. We don't like being needy. It's part of our culture, but it's also part of our religious background of we like to work for our salvation. We're wired to earn our salvation. We're wired to say, yeah, yeah, God gets me into, into, into the kingdom, but I've got to maintain it through being faithful. And I've got to make sure God still likes me today because I know he liked me when I said magic words and accepted Jesus back then. But today it's about how I act to make sure God loves me. But the gospel says, no, God loves you and accepts you right now through the work of Jesus Christ every day. And he holds on to you. And he will provide. He will take care of you. He gives you guidance. Look to him for help. Because it brings glory to God when we admit we need him. But it grates on us to admit that we need him. That's our hang up. Remember one time when I was in high school, <clears throat> I was part of this very large church. And the church parking lot became kind of the center of our activity. We'd meet there and then we'd kind of disperse from there and go do something, and then we'd come back and get back in our cars and go home. And I remember I came back. I was barely going to make curfew. <coughs> Excuse me. I was barely going to make curfew. And I get to my car, and everybody leaves, and I go to start my car, and it starts up, no problem. And I start to pull out, and something is wrong. Okay, something is just bad wrong. There's, like, noises of, like, a dying cat coming from under my hood. Smoke starts building from out of the hood. So I shut it off, and I open it up. And I was driving at the time a 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass, so back in the day, before the era of, you know nothing about engines, most engines today have one big serpentine belt that does your alternator, your air conditioning compressor, all your other stuff, one big belt. Back in the day, you had each little component had its own belt. And you, it looked like my alternator belt had slipped off and had jammed in the fan belt, and there was just, you know, just a mess. Needed major tools to get this 
taken care of. I did not have any major tools. It's 10 o'clock at night. My curfew is 10 o'clock, and I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. No pay phones at this time. So, see, anybody here who's under, uh, like, 20, what you used to have to do is you had to go down the street to find a little box, and you had to pull out coins, you see, and you put them in there, and you get to call. And so I called. I had to call Dad. Dad, the electrician, who gets up at 5 a.m. I had to call Dad, and I was so apologetic on the phone. I'm so sorry, Dad. Can you come help me? Dad gets there with his tools, and he looks at it and diagnoses it, and he starts working on it. Like, Dad, I'm so sorry. I know you got to go to work tomorrow. And he looked at me, and he goes, would you stop apologizing? This is a dad's job. I'm glad you called me. Let's fix this. I was like, oh, okay. So we did. We fixed it. And that's exactly what God is like. And that's honestly how we are to God, don't we? I'm so sorry I need your help, God. But this is, I'm so sorry. And God's like, this is what God is supposed to do. This is why I sent my son, because you can't do it. Ben Franklin said God helps those who help themselves. I didn't say that. That's what God is supposed to do. And so we're supposed to bring our need to God. And say, help. And God says, that's my job, and I'm honored you asked. God loves his people. And so he shows mercy because he's merciful. Boys and girls, I want you to get that. So would you look with me at your verse 2. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Just like workers wait for instructions from their boss, and just as children look to parents for food, So we look to you, the Lord our God, to take care of us. Boys and girls, I want to tell you a secret. You ready? Mom and dad are honored when you need their help. They're not bothered. It makes them feel all squishy inside when you come. Will you help me? And you know what? God loves it when his people say, will you help me too? God loves it when we admit we need him. And so for all of us, why is it so hard to do that? Instead of looking to God as our master, why do we resist that? It's because we've looked elsewhere for help. We've looked to false masters, and they've let us down. And so part of our heart assumes God will let us down. To what in your life right now are you looking to as your master for mercy and for grace? We all have masters. We all have things we look to that we hope will fix our lives. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's relationships. For some people, it's internet porn. It's money in the bank. It's the right friends getting invited to the right parties. It's, those are things the Bible calls idols. And we all are tempted to look to those false masters to fix our life right now or at least make me forget about my problems for a little while. And in church world, it can even be traditions. We can actually have a form of godliness and we look so religious, but we actually, like the Pharisees, miss the grace of God even though we're very religious and active. But if we look to our God as a servant looks to a master, we will have mercy, resources, and guidance from that master to help us in our problems. Because when the uppity folk get us down, we go over their heads, right? We go above them even higher to find grace. And so the question we have to ask as we wrap up this psalm is this. What is the source of our master's mercy? Whence comes this grace? Well, remember the context. Mercy or grace, we could say, is instruction and resources. It's guidance and supplies, we might say. How can we expect God to have mercy on us? 
And the simple answer is because he has shown himself to be merciful and because he says he's merciful. This psalmist would, as a child, would learn. And as an adult, they would live out. But they would learn Exodus 34, 6 and 7 as part of their education as a child. It says, says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yeah, that's in the mean Old Testament. They would know that. They would say, yes, God is merciful and gracious because it's part of God's nature to have mercy. The psalmist knew from the core of his being, from his soul, from his heart, that God is merciful because he'd been taught God's word as a child and he remembered when it mattered. Now, as we move past what the psalmist knew to what do we know, ultimately we know God did have mercy, didn't he? He did fulfill the call for mercy from his people when he himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, entered Jerusalem and went to the temple to be with God's people. And then he let them destroy the temple that was his body on the cross. He let himself be scorned and held in contempt on behalf of God's people. And that is how God had mercy. Who is this God? He's a God who's so closely bound to his people that when they are shamed, he is shamed. Literally, as Jerusalem hurled insult after insult upon Jesus Christ. Who is this God? He's, he's the God who when his people were held in contempt, he is too in Jesus Christ. God in the flesh who was mocked and spit on and scourged as he drug his own cross to his death. Who is this God of Psalm 123? He's the kind of God that when you cry out, have mercy, he can answer you with grace, guidance, and resources to fix your life. And he can do that because on the cross, when his own son, Jesus Christ, called out for mercy, God was silent. And instead of answering his son's plea for mercy, he poured the wrath we deserved onto his son. So he could then lavish his mercy on his people, even though his son deserved it. Who is this God? He's the master who upholds his honor. So that when his servants were shamed and held in contempt and broken by sin and death, he destroyed sin and death by shaming and breaking his son. So his people could live free. Will the master you serve today, right now, do that for you? Does that habit you look to does that relationship you look to to anchor your life, does that accomplishment, that thing, that social, whatever it is that gives you peace in your moments of stress, does it give you this kind of mercy? Does it give you its own resources and wisdom and power for your life? Or does it demand your resources and your power? Will it sacrifice itself to make you whole as God has done through Jesus Christ? 
No, you can be part of the family of this gracious master who comes and says, ask for mercy and you shall give it. Ask for anything in my name and I will do it. You can be part of the family of this merciful, gracious God. Simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Forget everything you think you thought Christianity was, everything you think church is about, and simply confess Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord and ask him to change you. And he will. He will have mercy. And do it now. Don't wait. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord,